Well then, trusting God for his guidance and help, let's uh, turn again to that passage of scripture, Exodus uh, chapter 14. And you'll notice in verse 13, Exodus 14, 13, that Moses tells the people not to be afraid and then tells them to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And again in verse 15, the Lord tells Moses to tell the children of Israel, just at the end of the verse there, to go forward. So there are two commands there <coughs> to God's people. One is commanding them to stand still, and the other is to go forward. Now as I just mentioned before the reading, in the morning with the Lord's help, we saw Israel uh, coming to the Red Sea and that was effectively for them their first trial as the redeemed people of God. Hemmed in uh, in God's providence and in God's purpose, hemmed in by the sea, the wilderness, the mountains, and the Egyptian army coming up behind them. <coughs> and we considered their response to that. Instead of being a response of faith and quietly waiting upon the Lord for his guidance, they responded in fear. Now at one level, that fear is understandable enough. On the human level, it's understandable enough. But the problem is they didn't get beyond the human level and they didn't get beyond the fear. And the reason for that was just because of their lack of faith. Or to put it another way, because of the presence of unbelief in their hearts. And because they weren't really believing and trusting God in the situation in which God had brought them, they were effectively paralyzed by the approaching Egyptian army. And although they cried out to God, we're told, it obviously wasn't a cry of uh, faith. It wasn't even a proper cry for help. It was a cry of frustration and complaint. And the minute they stopped praying, you'll remember that they began to pour out the evil and complaint of their heart to Moses, blaming him, starting to blame him, as they continued to do through the wilderness, saying we'd have been better off slaves in Egypt than just dying here like this in the wilderness. As the writer of the psalm told us in the morning, Psalm 106, sad to say they rebelled by the Red Sea. Now, who would have thought it? A people so recently liberated and redeemed by the power of God, first sign of trouble, and they complain. It's unjust. Our circumstances are too hard. And, well, they're mere despair. Now, I want to turn tonight to the way in which God responds to that, how he counsels them, and how at last he delivers them. And before we look at the detail of that, it's just worth noting uh, right away, in a way that kind of covers everything that we say, just how gracious and merciful God is. 
After all, the death of the Lamb was a figure of the death of his own son, which is something that he had purposed and was going to happen. And they don't seem fully appreciative. They're not properly grateful. Like I said, first sign of trouble, and they rebel against the Lord. But the psalmist goes on to say that although they rebelled by the Red Sea, nevertheless, he saved them. And that's just always the way it is, because at the end of the day, however great our attainments might be in this world, and they're never going to be all that great, we will always be saved, nevertheless. It's in spite of ourselves. Even at our best, it's in spite of ourselves. And he will save us because he has pledged and promised to do that through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes our faults will be so great that he'll visit them with rods and our sins with chastisements. But he'll not take his love from us because he loved us in his own Son. Well then, having said that, let's see the way in which the Lord does respond. First of all, be still, and second, go forward. When you take them together, they appear and they sound contradictory, but once we understand what they both really mean, we'll see that they complement each other. There's always a, a being still that God requires of you, and there's always a going forward that God requires of you. And it's in that order. Be still and go forward. Now let's take, first of all, be still. Moses said to the people, and of course this comes to him from God, in verse 13, Don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Stand still, in other words, instead of your fear and your panic. Instead of moving around in confusion, in unbelief, in perplexity, just stand still. Now, as I mentioned in the morning, I touched on it, there, there, there was a reason to fear. There's a lot to fear in the Egyptian army. And what's more, it's important to recognize that in all these great incidents in the Bible, uh, the power of evil is, is really present in a very stark way. Of course, all this is symbolic and typical of the cross and Christ's exodus on our behalf, delivering us from powers and principalities. But on every occasion when the Lord's people are in serious difficulty in the Bible, the devil is at work there too. It's interesting that in Psalm 74, when the, which we sang together, when the psalmist refers to this incident of the Exodus, he refers to the dividing of the waters and God executing the sea monster, the great Leviathan that is in the waters. God divided the sea and he broke the Leviathan's heads. Now, the Leviathan appears as a symbol of Satan himself. Um, the philosopher Hobbes wrote a book called Leviathan, where he speaks about the power of the state in that kind of way. It's a very famous uh, book on political philosophy, but this is where it gets 
its name from. But the Leviathan is essentially Satan himself, who we're told in Revelation 13 that this great beast arises out of the sea, uh, having seven heads. And uh, that is the cleverness, the ability of Satan in terms of his own thought processes and so on. But the psalmist tells us that God broke the heads of the Leviathan in the wilderness, sorry, in, in the waters. It goes on to say, incidentally, that he gave the Leviathan to be meat for his own people in the wilderness. Now, I think that's just a poetic description. Uh, nothing like that really happened. There was no beast killed in, in the waters. It's, it's all figurative. It's poetic. The idea is there that not only did he destroy Satan and his work, but the Lord's people were able to feed upon it. The way in which he had done it, it sustained them. It gave them spiritual nourishment. So the, the destruction of Satan and the powers of evil was a source of spiritual nourishment and satisfaction to the Lord's people. Without the, without the analogy being gross or inappropriate, there, there is a sense in which, of course, we feed on the sacrifice of the Lord. We spiritually nourish ourselves in the Lord. That is true in a higher sense, but it's also true that when the Lord defeats the powers of evil, there is nourishment and food for our souls there. That, that's what the psalmist says. You gave the Leviathan, whose heads were crushed, you gave him as food to your people in the wilderness. But the point here just now is this, that there was evil in the Red Sea. You, you can't just define the evil as something that existed in the Egyptian army. It also existed in the sea in front of them. The devil was to the front of them, the devil was to the rear of them, and the devil was all around them. And when Christians come into perplexity and confusion, it's not just like the perplexity and confusion of the world. I mean, if you're in the world, you can have the same sufferings as Christians do. There's no doubt about that. And from one perspective, they're the same. But it's only from one perspective. The, the devil has a great interest in magnifying the difficulties and the troubles of the Christian, simply because he wants to keep them back. You'll notice that Pharaoh wants to keep the people of God in Egypt. And of course, if the devil can't keep you in Egypt under his own sway and influence, he'll want to take you back to Egypt. He, he won't relax when you've left Egypt. He'll want to bring you back. And so when you see Pharaoh uh, desperately wanting this people to stay in the country, that's not all political and economic. I did mention in the morning that it was a serious blow to their economy. I mean, you have over two million people who are essentially free laborers for you. It's no wonder that they were a, a, a lazy civilization themselves. They had everyone doing the work for them. But the idea that they were suddenly losing all this was too much to bear. But that in itself becomes a picture of the devil who does not want to lose a square inch of territory to Christ. Not a square inch. As far as he's concerned, this world is to be destroyed and ruined. Because everything that God made, or that is destined to carry God's image, is to be destroyed and ruined. So even if you flee Egypt and follow Christ and profess his name, he'll want to bring you down and he'll want to bring you back. So the devil is all around. Moses is aware of that. 
and the spiritual people amongst Israel are aware of it too. This desire is for you. And it's a terrible thing to underestimate that. When that beast arises out of the water in Revelation, the beast with the seven heads, uh, we're told in just the same part of the book that Satan, of course, after the cross, was cast down from heaven to the earth in a special way. And the writer of Scripture says, John, John tells us, Woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath. Wrath. And his wrath is so great that he says, Woe to the earth and woe to the seas. And when the devil is let loose, it is something to be feared. It is something to be feared, and we well understand the fear of the Israelites. But although there's a reason to fear, there's not a reason to panic. Verse 14 tells us, well, Moses tells Israel that the Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. That expression, hold your peace in the Hebrew, is just be quiet. You shall be quiet. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall be quiet. Now I think that that be quiet indicates what be still is all about. Be still and be quiet, because the Lord will fight for you. Be still, be quiet, stop your complaining, stop your questioning instead of praying and waiting. Be still and be quiet instead of being angry and doubting, instead of quietly believing in the Lord. And the same goes for your attempts to remedy the situation. Your own wisdom and your own plans and your own strength won't extricate you out of this. Not by might nor by power will you defeat the Egyptian army with your own flesh and your own abilities. They're far more powerful than you. There's nothing you can do about the Red Sea. Nothing at all. No ingenuity, no inventiveness, no skill, no originality. Nothing. Nothing at all. But be still. But of course be still isn't on its own. As the psalmist famously says, Be still, he says, and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. That in itself comes in an interesting psalm, where all the nations are rising up in opposition against the kingdom of God. The waters are roaring, they're troubled, the mountains are shaking. But then all of a sudden God intervenes. Probably in response to the prayers of his people, sometimes perhaps they weren't wise enough to pray. But suddenly come and behold what wondrous works have by the Lord been wrought. What has he done? 
Well, he has made desolations in the earth. What kind of desolations? Well, he has turned wars into peace. He has broken the bow of the warrior. He has cut the spear in two, and he has burnt the chariot in fire. Therefore, be still. Let the church be still. Let the earth be still. And know this, that I am God. And one way or another, I will be exalted, not just in the church, but among the nations. And I will be exalted in all the earth. And then the church triumphantly concludes that the Lord of hosts is with us, and the God of Jacob is our refuge. Um, when God intervenes, he always wins the war. Now, these, these words telling them to be still and to see God's salvation reminds me very much of what God said uh, to Jehoshaphat when, well, he was a godly king, a very, one of the six godly kings of Judah, a great reforming king. And in his days there was a powerful coalition uh, of Ammonites and Moabites and some other peoples too, and they, and they bound together uh, against <coughs> Jehoshaphat and uh, the Lord's people. And Jehoshaphat calls for a, a national fast, a calling upon the name of the Lord, and the people gathered together in Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat himself prays. And he says to God that you said that if disaster comes upon us in the form of a sword or disease or famine, that we should stand before you in this temple and cry to you in our affliction. And then he refers to the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Edomites, and he says, here they are coming to throw us out of the land which you have given us to inherit. O oh God, will you not judge them? Now listen to these words that Jehoshaphat uses. And really, I, I have no comment to make on these words because sometimes you read words in Scripture and they, they just speak so powerfully for themselves. Just take them in and let them do you good as you hear them. We have no power against this great multitude coming against us. Neither do we know what to do. But our eyes are on you. And then we're told that all Judah with their little ones, their wives and children, stood before the Lord. And suddenly the Holy Spirit came upon a man called Jehaziel. And he said, listen, thus says the Lord, don't be afraid or discouraged because of this great multitude. Because the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go against them. But you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves. Stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. Don't be afraid or be discouraged. Go out against them. For the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat, were told, bowed his head with his face to the ground. And no wonder. Position yourselves. Stand still, or as it can be translated there, stand firm. 
Stand in your place and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, friends, it's always important in the Christian life, at its very beginning, and indeed every step of the way, it's important to remember what you must do and what only God can do. Only God can give you faith, but only you can exercise that faith. Only God can provide a way out. Only you can take the way out. Only God can make a way in the deep. Only you can take that way in the deep. Only God can wash you, but nonetheless you must wash yourself. The secret of sanctification lies in knowing that Jesus himself is the author of your sanctification. You wash you because he washes you. The blood and the water both came from Jesus' side. That reminds you that sanctification is hooked up to your justification. You wash yourself because God has washed you. You cleanse yourself because he has bathed you. You work out your salvation because God has already worked it in both the willing and the doing. There are some things you can do and some things only God can do. That's why it's wrong, for example, to say something like, um, oh, well, I can't believe because um, God has not given me faith yet. That's substituting what God is requiring you to do uh, with something else. You, you're mixing things up. You're putting the cart before the horse. I can't go to the Lord's table because God hasn't given me strength to go to the Lord's table. No, you go to the Lord's table and you'll find that God gives you strength to go to the Lord's table. Always watch it that we're not putting our thing where God is or putting God's thing where our duty is. I'll say something more about that in a moment. But the first lesson we always need to learn is to be still. Whenever trouble, difficulty or trial comes, just stop agitating yourself. Stop being anxious. Stop going here and there. Stop trying to work it out. Stop exhausting yourself in your own strength. Because these things, sad to say, are actually substitutes for where you really get your answer. You will really see the solution in the secret place where you are still before God and where he imparts his wisdom, his truth. He'll open his scriptures for you. He'll make the way plain and then you can go about doing what God wants you to do. Far too often we're just in a flap ourselves and it's a flap of unbelief. So after the people are stilled, God tells them to go forward. In other words, cease from yourself and move on now in my strength and with my guidance. Where? Towards the sea. Well, what's the point of that? Strange direction to go. After all, they are moving east. So to go forward means just 
to go towards the Red Sea. I suppose you could say that that would make some kind of sense if, before they start walking, God had actually parted the sea, and if they had seen it open up for themselves. I, I would say that then it would be sensible enough for them to go forward into a path that was wide open before them. But the fact of the matter is, friends, that I don't think at all at the very point at which they were asked to go forward, at the point at which they were commanded to go forward, I don't think at that point that the sea had parted at all. I've got three reasons for saying so. The first is that that's implied in the scripture itself, in the order in which things are said. In verse 15, the Lord says to Moses, Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But or and lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. The order implies that they start marching before the sea opens. The second reason is a comparison between this event and another event 40 years afterwards. When Israel were crossing the Jordan, something similar happened. Again, they were to cross the river when the river was actually in full flood, we're told in the passage, bursting its banks. And there the people had to march forward, and it wasn't until the priest's feet touched the edge of the water that the actual water started to go back and to recede. So quite clearly there, the people were moving forward until the water was touched, and then the waters parted. So I think it's fair to say that there is something similar here. March, and then the water opens. The third reason for saying so is because the letter to the Hebrews tells us that the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea by faith, not by sight. Now, I would admit, I would admit that even if the waters were open and they saw them open, it would still require a measure of faith to go into these, into this gap. Knowing that somewhere down there there's a wall on your right and somewhere down there there's a wall on your left. I know it would still take faith, I would admit that. But at the same time, I would submit to you that it takes far less faith than just simply walking towards the sea when nothing is happening at all. A place of death and a place of destruction. Therefore, the command is, just move forward because I said so. Now, friends, that's when faith works best. When you've got nothing to go on except what God said. That's faith at its cleanest and at its purest. Not a sign anywhere, but just the word of God and you take God at his word. And for them, I think there is a belief in their heart that somehow, unknown to them, God's going to make a way. They just don't know how. But friends, faith doesn't ask God questions. 
It's unbelief that asks questions. Maybe that's a bit too sweeping. Faith can ask some questions. Uh, for example, when Mary was told that sh she would have a child, uh, she did ask a question, how shall this be? And the, and the angel explained to her that the power of the Most High would overshadow her, and the holy thing conceived in her would be the, would be the Son of God. Yes, indeed, um, she asked a question, the question was answered. <laughs> she, I'm sure she had follow-ups. She didn't ask anymore, she left it at that. Interestingly, when Sechariah was told that his wife Elizabeth would have a son, he said, how shall this be? And the Lord took away his speech for nine months until John the Baptist was born. Because that wasn't faith asking questions, that was unbelief asking questions. I think we could say that Mary was asking questions in faith, the Lord was asking questions in unbelief. Some people can ask for signs in unbelief and God doesn't give them. Some people can ask for them in faith, like Gideon, who asked about the fleece twice, and God gave them. Only God knows. Only you and God know, really, whether what you're asking is out of unbelief or not. But the fact of the matter is that faith, simply as a rule, is not interested in asking questions. Faith is interested in doing what God wants to be done. When God called Paul to the apostleship, he said, I didn't go and ask Peter about it. I didn't go and ask John about it. I didn't consult with any flesh and blood, he says. The Lord called me and that's it. And faith responds like that. If God says something, it's true. If God commands something, it's to be done. When Simon had been fishing all night and he caught nothing, of course, famously, the Lord came on the shore and he said to Simon, launch out your nets, he says, into the deep. And of course, Simon says, and this is sight speaking, this is, this is common sense speaking, he says, we've toiled all night and we've caught nothing. But then faith kicks in and he says, nevertheless, he says, at your command, I'll let down the nets. Now, common sense would say, you're wasting your time. But faith says, well, Christ told me to. And of course, he drew a great draught of fish. Sight and common sense says, well, if, if I become a Christian, what will people say? What, what will my family say? What will happen to me at work? Faith says, go forward. But faith says, stand still. Stop worrying about that stuff. And then it says, no, go forward. Or again, if you do go forward, let's say, as we refer to people making a profession of faith at the table, again, people say the same thing. Well, again, what will people say? Or, you, or your fear maybe, well, how can I live the Christian life? Or maybe I just won't have the the strength to live the Christian life. Maybe I'm just beginning something that I can't keep going. Maybe I'm like the person who lays the foundation and, and just can't build the superstructure on it. Or the man who goes out to make war and he finds that he doesn't have the resources to win the war. And God says, stand still. No, he says, go forward. All that stuff is 
rank unbelief. I mean, if you're going to profess God, then profess a God who's able to do it for you. If, if you're going to believe in this God and to follow him, well, believe in the God who is able to take you and to lead you. If he's not able to take you and to lead you, don't bother believing him in the first place. Why should you? If he's worth believing in him, then believe in him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Believe in him. And just put doubt to the side. Because God will always make a way. He'll always make a way. As the psalmist said in the other psalm, Psalm 18, that by my God assisting me, I overleap a wall. You'll go through a sea, you'll leap over a wall. God can do all that for you. But before Moses stretches out his rod, a quite remarkable thing happens. And that is the luminous cloud that was going before the children of Israel, which, like I said in the morning, I'll come to another time. This cloud that appeared like a, a luminous cloud and at fire its luminosity came to the fore. It was a shining thing. It actually moved its position. From being in front of the camp of Israel, the cloud just moved behind this two million plus people and came in between themselves and the advancing Egyptian army. And it had an amazing effect. It had an amazing twofold effect. Because the same cloud cast its light on Israel and their camp. This is at night time. And at the same time, it actually obscured the environment for the Egyptians. You'll remember at Passover it was a full moon. So you would expect even in the early hours of the morning for there to be light. But suddenly for the Egyptians no light. This mysterious cloud came upon them and they just had to stop. They weren't able to move forward. The same cloud bringing light to one and darkness to the other. Now, I think, friends, in all honesty, that there is a, a sermon in that in itself. There really is. The presence of God giving light to some, darkness to others. The Word of God giving light to some, giving darkness to others. The fact is that God's presence came upon Egypt only to confuse, to perplex, and at last to condemn them. And the fact is that God is actually adding now to their confusion in judgment. The opportunities were there. They didn't take them. And now God is nothing to them but their judge and the one who condemns. And we see that principle at work all the time in the Bible. We see it powerfully in the New Testament in the second letter to the Thessalonians where Paul speaks about people who did not receive the truth of God. In fact, what he says is that they didn't receive the love of the truth. God, he says, will send them a strong delusion. Now, isn't that a fearful thought? God will send them a strong delusion 
that they should believe the lie. It's as though God says, well, you like a pack of lies, do you? Well, here's a pack of lies. And they are so plausibly presented to you that you're going to swallow them. Because he says, you never accepted the truth when I shone it brightly before your eyes and even shone it into your hearts. You never took it, you never received it, and you never loved it. In fact, you exchanged the truth of God for a lie. You've chosen to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Well, here's your delusion. And we are in a day of massive delusions, extraordinary delusions. There are people who believe that everything in this cosmos and, as they say themselves, in other cosmoses, multiverses, everything came from one pinhead of matter. One dense pinhead of matter that contains all the substance that is now in the universe by explosion. And that there is nothing else in the universe or in any other universe at all except that. And there is no creator behind it. So we've all come from a pinhead of stuff. Do you believe that that is an adequate explanation for the world? Do you believe it's an adequate explanation for the existence of your own soul? Do you honestly believe that that is an adequate explanation for things like truth and lies, beauty, ugliness, poetry, love, music, art, philosophy? Tell me if you honestly believe all that came from a pinhead of dense matter. Well, if so, friend, I would have no hesitation in saying that you have really believed a whopper. You've been sold a delusion. It's a huge delusion. It's so incredible that you're probably even sitting here wondering how on earth you've come to believe it. Well, so do I. But as Chesterton once said, when people cease to believe in God, they'll believe anything. They'll believe anything. And you sometimes find people in life where they reach the situation when at last God's word only confuses and perplexes them. There was a time, perhaps even when they were children, and it moved them, thrilled them. It gave them questions, insights, and so on. But but they resisted the demands. They resisted the ethical obligations. They didn't really want this God to be king over them. And as time goes by, the word of God just doesn't bring anything to them at all. It brings light and life and liberty to Christians. But it brings nothing to you anymore. It's something like that, sadly, that happened when Jesus began to preach in parables. There's a mistake in belief amongst people that Christ began to preach in parables to make things easy for people to understand when the reverse is the case. He began to preach in parables because people were taking offence at what he was saying and so he veiled it to make it harder for them to accuse. And they didn't understand what the parables were about. Of course the disciples said, can you explain the parable to us? And Jesus said yes, but to the rest, no. 
No. Because to them that have, more shall be given. To them that have not, even what they have shall be taken away from them. I suppose there's even an illustration of this uh, light to the one and dark to the other when the Lord returns a second time and we all see his countenance. What a, what a marvellous countenance that will be to the Lord's people. It will radiate nothing but love and warmth and kindness. But to the unbeliever who looks at it, he wants the hills to fall on him and the mountains to cover him, to hide him from the face, from the wrath of the Lamb. It's astonishing. Both are there in the one cloud and fire, but it's all in the eye of the beholder. Light to Israel, darkness to Egypt. And so they're hemmed in. But as the crowd um, begins to move early in the morning, the way is clear as far as the Egyptians are concerned because they don't know what's going ahead. They've no awareness the waters have opened. They've no awareness that Israel have gone through. Nothing like that. All they see is that this dense, dark cloud is starting to move away, and so they move forward. They follow the path that they've been following, and they think they're on ordinary dry ground. <laughs> I don't know how far the walls of water were apart. It's, some suggest that they have been miles apart. To allow over two and a half million to move across in a matter of, what, two or three hours? They're not aware, possibly, of walls of water on either side. They're just walking through the ground. The sinner never really knows how dangerous the ground on which he walks is anyway. The first inkling they have of it is, is when the water... Of course, when the water starts to return, it returns on the shallow parts first that are at, that are at both ends, behind them and before them. Just where, where I come from in Grimsey, it's a tidal island. I don't remember it being that way. The causeway was built, I think, the year I was born, or just the year before it. But uh, many's a life was taken crossing the ford from North Hughes to Grimsey, just because of how flat it all is, and the water just starts gathering around you. You had to know exactly when to cross and when not to cross. And what happened here is that the water's just closing in front of them, behind them. We're told that they actually ran into the water. They were trying to get to the edge, but they couldn't. Because the Lord released the walls of judgment suspended on both sides and they were just entombed in, in the wrath of God. They were just entombed there. And their proud chariots and their proud army and well, them and their pride entombed under the judgment of God. But how different things were for Israel on the bright side of the cloud when the Egyptians were still in the dark, standing still, prayerfully waiting this time, standing firm, as the word can mean, in their place, ready to do their duty, and ready to advance with Moses and Aaron at the head. God said to Moses, you lift your rod. The rod is a sign that Moses is acting under God's authority, not his own power. Lift your rod, he says, and a strong east wind began to blow. 
and started to separate uh, the water from the north and the south. And once it separated there, it's simply kept in check by the power of God. Some people try to use a natural explanation for these things. It's a waste of time. God kept these two walls in place just by his own great power. And all through the night, two million people passed from one end to the other. Amazingly, as they neared, they just saw this, the water just separating and separating, going apart from them. Suddenly, there's a way through the sea. There's a way through the difficulty that only God himself could have supplied once they learned to stand still. Amazing what happens when we stand still. It's not just a path that they saw, but Psalm 77 tells us that they, they were aware of God's footsteps there. His footsteps were in the deep, although they were hidden. I think what that means is that they knew that God was going before them. They couldn't see his steps, but they were well aware of a presence. Now, at one sense, of course, the presence had gone behind them, but there was also a presence in front of them. We sometimes speak of God going before us and going behind us. Well, he was doing that here. If you had asked an Israelite, is there anyone in front of you? They would say, yes, there's someone in front of us. We can't see his footsteps, but ah, he's in the waters with us. He's in the difficulty with us. He plotted this way through, and he's going through it with us. Because when we pass through the waters, God will be with us and the waters will not overflow us. And that's very much what they were aware of. Just like ourselves. I mean, in life we can't see the glory cloud either and neither can we see the footsteps of God. But we know that the Lord is with us too. In the fourth watch of the night, they had finished. That's between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. Sometime there, they finished crossing Israel. Sorry, Egypt had started to move. Things were brightening up for them. But we're told that towards 6 a.m., we're told that God looked down from the cloud. That's just an anthropomorphic expression. As much as to say, my presence saving them is now my presence judging you. We're told that he looked down and he troubled them. Now, there were many signs of this trouble. Psalm 77 tells us that lightning flashed in the sky. It tells us that thunder was heard. It tells us that the rain started to lash down. It tells us that the ground on which the chariots were got boggy, that the wheels started to stick and some of them started to come off. And then Moses was told to stretch out his hand and the walls of water were suddenly released and they began to cascade and, of course, to overwhelm the Egyptians. And, as God said to Moses, the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. And let me just close by saying that I think that's a way of reminding us that what this is a great symbol of, that is a a once-for-all break with the tyranny and dominion of sin is just that. It's a once-for-all break. 
There's an ongoing fight through the wilderness with sin and temptation and so on. Yes, but there's a definitive break at the same time. As far as this is concerned, he says, you're free. The blood has justified you. And I have taken you through the waters. You're on new ground now. You're on resurrection ground. You will never be under that tyranny again. I suppose in a sense it's bringing the resurrection together with the cross. We have not just been crucified with Christ. We have been buried with Christ. And we have been raised again into newness of life. With the Lord Jesus Christ so that we should no longer live as the Egyptians live but we live as Christian people live no longer shall sin have dominion over us we are not now under the law we are under grace no wonder there's a celebratory song of triumph in chapter 15 we should have the same I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear. At length to me he did incline my voice and cry to hear. He took me from a fearful pit and from the miry clay and on a rock he set my feet, establishing my way and he put a new song in my mouth, our God to magnify. So the Red Sea is something once for all and definitive and simultaneously it's a reminder to you that God will take you through and he'll take you out of all perplexities and difficulties if you learn to stand still and then go forward. Let us pray. <coughs> o oh Lord, if God teaches to stand still when we should indeed stand still, and to go forward when we should go forward. Deliver us from moving in our own strength and wisdom, going to and fro and making haste. Help us rather to wait for the guidance of the Lord who is present with his people as a pillar of cloud and fire. We ask that you would grant us grace to Make this break with Egypt and to remember that it has been made and having escaped from it, deliver us from ever living like Egyptians again. May we live as the redeemed people of God, called out of sin and into righteousness and holiness. In the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. <coughs> Let's um, close our service singing in Psalm 46. And at verse 8, Psalm 46, at verse 8. Come and behold what wondrous works have by the Lord been wrought. Come see what desolations he on the earth hath brought. Unto the ends of all the earth wars into peace he turns. He uses war to make peace. The bow he breaks, the spear he cuts, in fire the chariot burns. All of us be still and know that I am God. Among the heathen I will be exalted, I on earth will be exalted I. 
Oh, with God, who is the Lord of hosts, is still upon our side, the God of Jacob, our refuge, forever will abide. The last four stanzas, let's stand and sing. <laughs>